1: Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events.
2: It's AirTalk on a Wednesday here on LAS 89.3. It's Austin Cross with you. So nice to be hanging with you on this day before the holiday. By the way, are you nervous? I know a lot of folks can be, especially if you're maybe cooking something ambitious. You're not sure how it's going to turn out. (laughs) Of course, I have a lot of thoughts. I shared at our producer meeting this morning. A lot of thoughts on people who try out recipes for the first time on such an important occasion. But (laughs) that aside, we're also going to have some advice for you coming up A little bit later on this hour on how to avoid Thanksgiving failures, big and small. And I'm also going to want to hear about a time when home cooking maybe turned into holiday horror. I don't know. Maybe you burned something. Maybe you undercooked something. Maybe those potatoes were extra crunchy. I'm going to want to hear those calls for sure. Sure. That's coming up a little bit later in the show. But we start right now with some incredible reporting from our OC reporter, Nick Goethe looking into Orange County Supervisor Andrew Doe. His investigation revealed that over a a two-and-a-half-year span, Doe was involved in directing $3.1 million to a health center where his daughter was president. I should mention she's fresh out of college, still working on her law degree. So a lot of questions there. Let's dig into it with Nick Gerda. Morning, Nick.
3: Good morning, Austin.
2: So just to start us off for folks who aren't familiar, who is Supervisor Andrew Doe?
3: Yeah, so Supervisor Andrew Doe is one of the five elected officials, the county board of supervisors, who oversee the county government in Orange County that's responsible for a whole bunch of things, law enforcement, the sheriff's department, jails, homeless services, mental health services, public health, an enormous amount of billions of dollars a year in spending. And he was originally elected to that role in 2015, re-elected in 2016 and 2020, and he represents a district that includes Little Saigon, Huntington Beach, and uh, Buena Park, other parts of uh, Orange County,
2: western North County. Yeah, I was mentioning earlier, he's a familiar voice here on LAS. We've spoken to him in the past. But tell me a little bit more about his daughter's organization and what we know about how that was run, about how the funding maybe got to that organization.
3: Yeah, so her organization's called Warner Wellness Center, it describes itself as a mental health outpatient. Uh, center and uh, it's received th- over three million dollars in county sub- county funded subcontracts that Doe took votes to fund mm. without mentioning uh, that this was his daughter's organization um, that he was voting to fund. Um, he also Doe has also directed about four million dollars to the underlying nonprofit that uses Warner Wellness as its name, or later on took on Warner, Warner Wellness as its name. Uh, some of those votes were public. Um, Doe did also one of those votes was public, and Doe did not disclose his family connection um, and. Uh, um, uh some of those contracts never went to public votes by the board.
2: And I also want to ask about that because it, I believe it's called the Viet America Society, right? Yes. And there's a proximity thing here because it's on the same floor – As his law office, is that it?
3: Yeah, so this uh, America Society and Warner Wellness Center, two names for the same entity, they're both located in um, offices in the same building as Doe's private law office in Huntington Beach, on the same floor, just a few suites uh, away. Um, And Doe also has been reporting Uh, over $100,000 a year in income, outside income, through his law office. Uh, He hasn't disclosed any of the clients who are paying him those funds. Uh, The legal requirement is any client paying over $10,000 in the year has to be uh, disclosed.
2: Now, Obviously, as a matter of a journalistic process, you did reach out to Doe. Did you hear anything at all? I didn't. I reached out multiple
3: times over the last um, couple weeks to his cell phone, uh, through his office, and uh, I've, I've gotten no comment from him or, or his
2: daughter, who I've also reached out to. But you have spoken to some of his colleagues, some of them who maybe even voted for this funding Were any of them aware about the close connection between this organization and Doe?
3: Yeah, I called all five county supervisors, including Doe. Three of them got back to me, uh, and none of those three said they were aware of the family connection. Uh, Two of them, Katrina Foley and... Uh, Vicente Sarmiento both told me they had no idea about this family connection um, with Doe when they when they were taking votes. Uh, Sarmiento said that this, these kinds of family connections absolutely need to be disclosed, um, made aware to the board. Um, and uh, I'll just add that the board is is voting on updating their, their contracting policies next week and what they define as a conflict of interest. Uh, and Doe was uh, part of the two supervisor
2: group that that led the drafting of those rules. I mean, as I was reading your piece, I started to get this feeling of, Okay, something's not adding up here, especially when I saw that uh, Andrew Doe's daughter was listed as the president of this organization. Uh, still very young. I mean, there are young and successful people in the world, sure, but it's quite a title for an organization that's managing uh, that kind of money. Uh, is there any sense right now of what uh, they those organizations have done? Because I know they were supposed to provide some some mental health services for the community. I think one was a, a hotline for Vietnamese language mental health uh, support. Uh, Is there any proof that they actually did any of those services that they were paid to do?
3: There are a lot of unanswered questions. Um, I've asked the county... for information about how they've been performing. The county has not answered any of my questions, um, but I did go visit their office and I did see a training going on. So so they are doing some, some you know, appeared to be doing some work under one of these subcontracts. Uh, but there's a lot of unanswered questions about how much experience they had to, to be able to do this work. And um, it appears that other uh, major um, nonprofit groups um, Apparently, we're not reached out to uh, for the opportunity to, to do this work. And so there's a lot of questions about the process, Doe's role in the process, uh, potentially behind the scenes um, that, uh, that we're just not able to get answers to because the county uh, won't answer uh,
2: the specific questions I've been asking them for two weeks. Well, Even after these votes, there was some concern on enough levels that I understand somebody even escalated it maybe to an FBI uh, reporting, what what was that?
3: Yeah, so I spoke with Connie Chung Jo. She's uh, the executive director of LA's top Asian American civil rights group, Asian Americans Advancing Justice Southern California, and she said that um, there was there was a meeting uh, with community nonprofit leaders with concerns about this organization, and she followed up by reporting it to the FBI. I reached out to the FBI, and they said they do not uh, confirm or deny the existence of investigations or any any information that may have been reported to it's a them. Very
2: FBI response. We cannot it confirm is. or deny. Um, They're usually pretty disciplined about that. They, they are. And I've worked with, uh, was it Laura I. Miller? Yep, that yeah, was her. I've worked the, with her yeah. in the past for sure. That, that really tracks. Uh, Nick Gerda, our OC uh, senior reporter, his story, her, our headline story right now on laist.com, uh, certainly worth checking out. There is a whole lot more there. I actually printed it out for this conversation. It's 21 pages long for me. So there's a lot to dig into there. Some really incredible reporting. Thank you so much, Nick.
3: Thanks so much, Austin.
2: We now turn our attention to a 60th anniversary. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy
4: died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Vice President Lyndon Johnson has left the hospital in uh, Dallas, but we do not know uh, to where he has proceeded. Uh, Presumably, he will be taking the oath of office shortly and become uh, the 36th
2: president of the United States. November 22, 1963, John F. Kennedy is assassinated in Dallas, Texas, at the age of 46, his wife Jackie by his side. That day is burned into the collective memory of Americans, even if most of us weren't alive to see it. So today we wanted to discuss the life and legacy of a president who was killed in his prime, but we also want to hear uh, from folks who may have been alive at the time of the assassination of President Kennedy and maybe what you remember. I know it's been 60 years at this point. There's a lot of folks who, you know, if you were of an adult age, you're you know very well on in the years right now, but I know we certainly get those listeners to air talk as well, but you might have also been a child. You know, I think a lot of us, even uh, younger people, when tragedies happen, we understand uh, the gravity of the situation through the adults around us, through the emotions that we're seeing. Sometimes emotions that we've never seen a person actually display. If you were alive at that time uh, and you have a memory, if you have a recollection from that day 60 years ago today, uh, I would love to hear from you, 866 893-5722 893-5722 is the number. Again, that's 866 893 Well, joining us this morning to talk about his political legacy is Frederick Logevall, professor of history and international affairs at Harvard University. He's also the author of JFK Volume 1, which looks at Kennedy's life from birth to about 1956. He's working on Volume 2 right now. Frederick, thank you so much for coming on. I'm pleased to be with you. To start here, it, it, it's kind of important to go back because I understand that uh, John Kennedy's father, Joseph, he would served as ambassador to the UK, and that put a young John F. Kennedy in a very unique position to travel the world when he was younger, and that really helped shape his worldview, uh, a lot of that that he'd bring into the presidency later. How formative were those early years for John?
5: I think they were absolutely critical, and I, I, we need to give a, a shout out to his mother here, Rose, who doesn't get as much attention, for understandable reasons, as as the father does. But Rose, I think more than than Joe Kennedy, instilled in young Jack this interest in the world, this interest in history, um, in, I think, international travel. And then, as you say, when when Joe Kennedy was ambassador to Britain, a rather disastrous turn as ambassador, mm-hmm. by the way. Jack, as a Harvard student, has an opportunity to really travel throughout Europe right on the eve of war. It's an extraordinary story that he then takes full advantage of. And I suggest in the first volume, it instills in him both a a set of interests and an understanding of the world that he will take with him really down until Dallas 60 years ago.
2: I also see a connection, you know, once he became president to... Uh, His understanding of America and its role on the global stage uh, as a leader, as a leader in democracy, uh, because I think he wrote a paper during his college years about why England slept, why there wasn't a lot of political will on the part of England uh, prior to the start of the Second World War to attempt to maybe rein in uh, aggression coming from Nazi Germany at the time. Uh, and I think that's a very relevant conversation today even about you know, leadership and, and how you know, idly we sit by uh, while things happen on the global stage. Uh, when we look at JFK and his high points uh, on foreign policy when he was president, what were his goals from your view? Uh, what stands out and maybe what was left to be achieved? Well,
5: I think what he wanted to do was to obviously assert American leadership. I mean, this is another interesting uh, uh, comparison with his father. His father was an arch isolationist, and the two of them drifted apart in rather dramatic ways prior to U.S. entry into World War II, because Jack had determined that an isolationist position was untenable for the United States. And I think later... As a congressman as a senator and then as president he wanted to um, strengthen uh, america's position as a leader of the west and i think built on that as president but i think maybe what's most important here is that i think he also tried with some success as president to reconceptualize the cold war uh to reduce tensions in particular with the soviet union khrushchev i think deserves credit for taking steps on his own to make that happen. And I think this is something I'm trying to develop in the second volume. I think this predates the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's not simply the case that it was as a result of this, you know, near miss, uh, this close, um, this possibility of nuclear conflagration between the two superpowers. It's not simply as a result of that that Kennedy wants to do this. I think even before then, he understood that in a nuclear world, you could not have the two superpowers at each other's throats, and you had to take you had to take steps to minimize that. And I think that's that's something that also has resonance uh, for us today.
2: I understand war was probably very personal to him. Obviously, he'd served in the Second yeah. World War. He lost his brother in the war. Um, yeah. so it wasn't just this you know concept that was far away from him and many Americans, honestly, at the time. so it this seems like something he took very personally
5: oh it's it's such a good point uh, and i think that world war ii was absolutely formative his own experience in the south pacific a very dramatic moment when he saves his crew and himself when his uh, pt boat is rammed uh but i think more broadly an understanding of just how important international affairs will be in the middle decades of the 20th century his belief coming out of World War II that the United States must assume a leadership position, and uh, almost a kind of paradox, I think a a skepticism on young Kennedy's part about the military instrument, if I can put it that way, a sense that it's a very blunt instrument, Mm -hmm. um, and one that has to be used with great care because he saw up close just how destructive it was it's, a, it's an interesting pair of conclusions that he draws from his experience in the war.
2: Talking right now with Frederick Logevall, professor of history and international affairs at Harvard University about the legacy of JFK who was assassinated 60 years ago today. In just a second, we're going to talk about Kennedy's uh, impact on the conversations around civil rights at the time. Uh, but we have a few folks who actually called in uh, to share their memories of the day when JFK was killed. Robin is calling us from Hermosa Beach. Robin, what do you remember about that day?
1: I have a very, very vivid memory seared into my brain and heart. In uh, 68 years old, and it was in second grade in West Hollywood Laurel Elementary when my teacher, Mrs. Mm-hmm. Julian, who I'm sure I remember her name because of the events, yeah. was called out into the hallway by the administrators and then came back in. And told us that we would be going home for the day, and she was crying and never said why. And we were dismissed. I went home. I walked home. I lived only a few blocks, and sat and watched the rest of the day and the evening with my grandmother. All of the coverage and the moment he announced it was announced that he had died.
2: I mean, as a second grader, Robin, did you understand at all the gravity of what had just happened or maybe even the fear of not knowing who did it and and what could happen next? I
1: I don't think that I had thoughts of what would happen next, but I understood absolutely that this was an earth-shattering moment. I mean, the... The, I remember the, the news people and Walter Conkite and my grandmother's reaction and the adults around me. And to see my dear Mrs. Julian, second grade teacher, weeping was impactful. So I knew absolutely mm. that something terrible had happened to our country.
2: That's Robin from Hermosa Beach. Robin, thank you so much for sharing your memory. Sally is calling us from Studio City. Sally, what do you remember about that day?
1: Hi, um, I, uh, my husband and I were working in Las Vegas at the time. It was early in our, both of our careers, and we were doing backup vocals, and we were in the hotel room where, where we were working. We stayed also there, turned on the television in the morning, and this shocking, heartbreaking, unbelievable news came across the, the screen, and we, we couldn't really understand clearly what had happened, and as the, as the story unfolded, of course we did. But we were in Las Vegas, and we were there to work, as the people who live there are there to do. But we'd walk out through the casino to to go outside or to go out away from the hotel. And in the casino, it was like nothing happened. People who had gone there to gamble were still doing it, and it was like living in two different worlds. You know, you'd you'd pass through those spaces, and you'd go out into the into the street, into the air walk across to the coffee shop or something, and it would hit you again. And the people that lived there, the people whose community that was, were heartbroken and emotional and and reacting just as we were reacting. But it was so strange to be in that setting where there was a part of the world that just seemed to be going on, or maybe they didn't even know about it yet. I don't know. But the whole day, that's how it went.
2: Gosh, That's Sally in Studio City. Sally, thank you so much for sharing that memory with us. I want to bring Sharon Wilkins Conrad into the conversation. She's associate professor of history at Tarrant County College. She's also senior fellow at the Southern Methodist University Center for Presidential History. Sharon, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Well, I want to ask you about the the civil rights legacy of President Kennedy, because as I understand it, prior to about May of 1963, Kennedy's approach to civil rights was seen by many civil rights leaders as a little bit noncommittal. And then the Birmingham riots started. I'm wondering if you could maybe talk about what effect uh, that had on his presidency and on the the policies he really championed uh, after that point.
6: Yes, I think that uh, the events in Birmingham uh, in which you have for the very first time young people actively engaged on the front lines of uh, protest, uh, very young people, uh, you begin to see the national attention when law enforcement officials in Birmingham use violent means to dissuade these nonviolent protesters. And so um, uh, Police Commissioner Bull Connor is going to make use of fire hoses and police yeah. dogs to um, to respond to these nonviolent protesters. And it gains national as well as international attention. And I think it galvanizes the nation on this issue. But importantly, it convinces, I think, President Kennedy that, you know, the The policy that he is trying to pursue of negotiating with Southerners and trying to convince them that it's in their best interest uh, is likely not going to be enough. And so you begin to see starting that May and continuing on through the summer that he is grappling with how to respond uh, to this new phase, uh, this new incredibly violent um, and highly publicized phase of the response to the civil rights movement.
2: You know, I can imagine at the time just the power that hope would maybe have among voters, especially African-American voters, um, because he did relatively well with them when he was first elected and they were likely, you know, African-American voters likely in large numbers were going to help reelect him uh, in 1964. Based off of your research, was there a sense of uncertainty, fear uh, about what would happen next for black Americans after uh, Kennedy was killed on that day 60 years ago?
6: Absolutely. You know, of course, the nation, the world, everybody uh, had these responses to what happened in Dallas that day. But for African Americans in particular, there was a sense that hope was lost. Uh, The president that summer had uh, come out and made a televised address to the nation, specifically making the cause for the um, morality of uh, the civil rights movement. So really making a moral statement to the nation that the changes that African-Americans were demanding weren't just the, the African American um, concern, that it was in fact everyone's responsibility. And so after the president makes that speech, it, it, transforms the way that African-Americans think about him in many ways. Um, The White House receives all kinds of letters and telegrams from African-Americans all over the country expressing their gratitude to the president and the sense that they never thought anything like that would happen, that the president of the United States would speak on their behalf. And so when President Kennedy is killed in Dallas 60 years ago, it is seen as a, uh, an end in some ways for, for many, that uh, the movement and the cause that he aspired to, the, le- the legislation that he called for in that speech, uh, that all of that was going to come to a screeching halt. And uh, it really did affect and impact African Americans in ways that they felt was distinctly personal to them and their cause.
2: Gosh, I know it's just emotionally that must have been just so difficult to have that uncertainty. I want to take a call from Mary and Glendora because Mary, I understand you were 30 years old at the time of the assassination. Uh, What do you remember about that day?
1: I remember everything as if it were yesterday because it was a double shock for me. My father had passed away a year before that, almost to the day, and I was still grieving from that. My husband was in Florida uh, working at Cape Canaveral, and uh, so the only thing on television, of course, was funeral music and, and very, very dark Uh, and I had, that was my only entertainment, I had two small children. And uh, it was a a difficult, difficult time for me and uh, I've never seen the nation shut down so much as that day. Uh, My brother was in Washington, D.C. with the State Department and I have a letter from him uh, attending uh, the Rotunda and the mood in Washington, D.C. when it happened. So it's very fresh in my mind.
2: Wow, Mary, thank you so much for sharing that. 90 years old now. Thank you so much, Mary, in Glendora. This is AirTalk. I'm Austin Cross. I just want to read a few more of these comments because I don't think we're going to have time to get to them all. But Terry says, I was nine years old, and I was homesick that day. I was watching Father Knows Best. Uh, I was watching the first bulletin that came on the air on ABC And Terry didn't understand what a motorcade was. Uh, That's Terry in Long Beach, so that had to be uh, explained to Terry. Um, And then Richard says, I was in first grade. The teacher was called out of the room. She came back and told us what happened. We were let out early. My mom didn't believe me when I told her, but when she turned on the radio, she started crying. That's Richard in Silver Lake. I'm Austin Cross. This is Air Talk on a Wednesday. Thank you so much for joining us today, talking about... The legacy of President John F. Kennedy 60 years to the day after his assassination in Dallas, Texas. When we come back, we're going to change direction, change tone a little bit, talk about Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving food. That's in 60
7: seconds. Stick around.
2: All good things. Pretty much these are a few of my favorite things. Pies, of course. It's air talk. I'm Austin Cross. Of course, we're going to talk about food right now. And let's face it, on a holiday, with so many moving parts as Thanksgiving, something is bound to go wrong, right? There's the turkey, which is a famously tricky bird to wrangle. Have you defrosted yours yet? Oh, gosh, please say yes. But then there's the full array of side dishes, and any one of those could go off the rails too. Of course, you have to think about cleanliness, maybe a little bit of food code in there. We haven't even gotten to dessert. So is it fair to say that failure is inevitable? All right, for the next few minutes, I want to hear from you about your biggest Thanksgiving dinner fail. Maybe something didn't turn out the way that you want it to maybe it overcooked maybe it undercooked maybe it was a dish that somebody else brought to your event i want to hear about those thanksgiving dinner fails you can give us a call 866-893-5722 is our number 866-893-5722 i will tell you mine in just a few minutes but i want to hear yours first 866-893-5722 there's also at comments at aliast.com email just please include your location and name because we want to give you cred of course Joining us to talk about common Thanksgiving cooking mistakes and how to prevent them in the first place is Clemence Delutz, co-owner of the Gourmandise School in Santa Monica. Clemence, thank you so much for coming on.
8: Hi Austin, thank you so much for having me. Happy Thanksgiving!
2: A very happy Thanksgiving to you. I mean, top of mind here, and I alluded to this a little bit earlier in the show, but during my conversation with the producers this morning, I have this firm belief that for Thanksgiving, people who you know have never cooked at any other point in the year maybe have this ambitious idea uh, of making this beautiful Norman Rockwell esque spread. Uh, so just top. Top of the list here, do you think people just bite off more than they can chew sometimes?
8: Yeah, I feel like this holiday is about, you know, gathering with people, having fun and um, unrealistic expectations. So I would say that in order to have a really successful, fun, enjoyable Thanksgiving, it's kind of all about planning and delegating and not biting off more than you can chew.
2: I understand a lot of that planning. Obviously, it just comes from experience. But for the folks who maybe have not done this as much, I want to talk about prepping properly. But I also want to put out our number because I want to hear some Thanksgiving fails, y'all. What you did wrong, maybe somebody else did wrong. Maybe somebody brought a dish uh, to your your dinner. Uh, What went wrong with that? I'll tell you mine. I made this uh, baked macaroni and cheese dish, but I made the mistake of buttering uh, the macaroni, macaroni noodles, uh, before I put on the cheese, none of the cheese stuck to the macaroni. And it was, um, yeah, everybody was polite enough not to say anything, but I knew. I knew deep down inside that I had messed up. Eight six six eight nine three five seven two two. if you'd like to share your experience. Uh, Clemence, talk to me about prepping properly because there are some things that people can do uh, starting today even to make their Thanksgiving dinner a little bit easier tomorrow, right?
8: Yeah, I think um, my favorite tip is to spatchcock your turkey and to dry brine it. I think wet brining is just not a great idea for all of the space that you might have lost in the refrigerator where you're storing so many other things for the holiday. Um, So starting with spatchcocking, which means that you're going to cut the spine out of the Mm -hmm. turkey. Of put the turkey breast side down, cut along the spine, try not to get those like yummy little oysters, which is this nice meat kind of two-thirds of the way down. Um remove the spine, flip it over and then flatten it out. So imagine if a chicken was just kind of splat <laughs> and then <laughs> put that put that you know um on a grate some kind of cooling rack over um a roasting pan or a cookie sheet that's got a rim on it. And just put a nice dry brine. You want to use about a teaspoon of kosher salt for every pound of turkey. And um, add some spices to that. It'll help to infuse a lot of the turkey with salt. It also kind Mm. of relaxes some of those muscles um, and breaks down proteins to make your turkey a lot more tender. Um, And then take that out. Make sure you pat the turkey nice and dry. um, So you can get a really crispy skin. I'm on like the crispy skin end of things. I love that. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it only takes about 90 minutes um, to cook a turkey that's, you know, about 12 pounds when you're spatchcocking it. I also like to do this in a roasting pan with vegetables underneath like turnips and carrots and potatoes so that they can cook with all the drippings from the turkey. You're kind of killing two birds with one stone,
2: so to speak. I'll say, Clemence, I am a big fan of crispy skin and spatchcocking mm-hmm. any bird. Plus, you get the spine. You can make a nice stalk or can go That's toward right. anything. It's just so wonderful. I don't know why more people do it. Honestly, I've always thought it was just so ambitious that people would put in the whole bird and have to cook it for so long. You can save time. And still get a wonderful product on the other end. Um, so. And
8: still have room in the oven to roast other things. Right. So when you've got your full turkey in there, nothing else can fit. Um, but I like that technique so that you can braise some stuff maybe on the bottom, um, some fennel or some beans even. And kind of get two dishes done at the same time.
2: We're talking about Thanksgiving fails, specifically things that maybe people don't get right that make their dinners take longer, or maybe just they get a very uh, suboptimal product. Uh, and if you've had a Thanksgiving meal that maybe did not go as planned, I would love to hear from you. 866-893-5722 is our number. A is calling us from Glassell Park, and that's A like A Martinez, but not actually A Martinez. Uh, a, what's your experience?
1: Well, uh, in 2019, I drove with a few of my friends all the way to uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, to see my best friend who had just moved there. And we had a lot of dishes going, a lot of vegetables, a lot of pies, potatoes, uh, stuffing, and two of them were doing the turkey, uh, which was taking longer than we expected to cook. Mm. And about four hours into it, uh, I looked at the dials on the oven and I said, did you try turning it on?
2: (laughs) Uh, so the oven was never on, and we just didn't have turkey that day. But we had so many other things that it didn't matter. I mean, did did nobody smell it or, or notice the absence of a smell? I guess not. I'm not in charge of that part, so <laughs> what's
7: wrong?
2: <laughs> Wasn't your department. Wow. Okay. That is a first step, is uh, turning on the oven. That's A in Glassville Park. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Barry is calling us from Woodland Hills. Barry, what's your uh, Thanksgiving fail? Barry, are you with us? Okay, we'll come back to Barry. Beth is calling us from Valley Village. Beth, uh, what was your Thanksgiving uh, fail?
1: My very first turkey when I first moved to Los Angeles in 1975. A bunch of us were getting together at a friend's house in the valley, and I was in Hollywood, and I cooked the turkey dutifully, followed directions, stuffed it, and I left it out overnight, oh. thinking that was a good idea. And got there, we all spread out and we're eating, and it was like the emperor has no clothes because finally one little boy said, "Mommy, this turkey tastes funny." <laughs> and so then we all admitted that we better not eat anymore. So that's there's a reason I'm a vegetarian now.
2: I can just imagine the panic when to spit that out. <laughs> Don't swallow that. <laughs> Wow. And I mean, what's funny about this is this happened in 1975, Beth. So this is clearly something that left an impact on you.
1: It left a huge impression on me. I do not cook turkey at Thanksgiving.
2: (laughs) Never again for Beth at Valley Village. Beth, thank you so much for sharing your story. I think we might have Barry back with us from Woodland Hills. Barry, do you have a Thanksgiving feel? Oh, yeah. What you got? Oh Barry, we lost Barry again. That's okay. We tried Barry. God help him. We tried. Oh Barry, Barry. What? I am. Yeah, sorry. See, Barry, what's your Thanksgiving um, yeah, fail, have... my guy?
9: Uh, well, it actually belongs to a buddy of mine. He had decided that he was going to cook the turkey for the uh, Thanksgiving and bring it over. And he, he said he, I'm going to barbecue it because he just had a new barbecue which he'd never done before. And we were like, okay, sounds good. Bring it over. Anyway, later on in the day, you know, we're like, okay, when are they going to be here? So we get this, I get a picture from his wife. And it was a picture of a turkey that was absolutely toasted, completely and on top of a black barbecue. Mm-hmm. And what he'd done is he burnt it and nearly, you know, there were flames everywhere. So I uh, printed it out and put it on the wall where we were having the dinner. So they turn up, and he hadn't told us. This was completely unknown to everybody. And he turns up with his turkey because he fortunately bought one. And all the smiles and everything. And we're going around the table. We're all giving thanks. And I go, yeah, I'd like to give thanks for the actual turkey that didn't make it. And I pointed <laughs> to the picture on the wall, <laughs> and it was just hilarious.
2: Oh, so, Yeah, boy. that one
9: goes out to Jeff.
2: That one goes out to him. Thank you so much, Barry and Woodland Hills. I want to come back to Clemence really quickly before we wrap here, but uh, any last thoughts uh, before we send off, you know, thousands of cooks into the kitchen to prepare food for thousands more people? Any other things that people should just be thinking about today so it doesn't become a pain point tomorrow? Um, Yeah,
8: absolutely. Uh Absolutely. First of all, be kind, be kind to yourself <laughs> and um, go ahead and chop up all of your root vegetables. Like just start the prep by doing all the things that kind of feel messy. So you can wake up tomorrow morning, everything's prepped out. Maybe you're um, coating some uh, potatoes and carrots with some olive oil and spices. You can roast them in the oven and then rewarm them. You're cooking up all of your um of of all of your main dishes and then save tomorrow for things like salad that might wilt if you Mm. did it ahead of time but most important focus on pie today pie is a religion here we love pie (laughs) don't overthink it just make a really simple crust and if you're afraid of crimping and you know making a beautiful decorative pie just use a crumble on top so Mm. make your bottom crust put it in drop in your fruit with some starches. We've got a lot of recipes on our website here. We're in full pie mode. I'm getting ready to teach two, four hour pie classes today. And then um, arrange some beautiful crumble on top. We've got some pie crumble recipes on the website too. And that way you're not sort of overthinking it. So really good fruit, really simple things. Add a nice crumble on top, add some nuts if you like, and, um, and some spices and pop it in the oven. You can actually build your pie, freeze it, and then warm it up t- tomorrow, cook it tomorrow from the freezer if you're doing a crumble. Um, and remember that pie needs to sit, fruit pie needs to sit for a couple of hours after baking so that the juices don't all kind of flow out when you're cutting up your slices. So prep your pie today, prep your root vegetables today, and tomorrow save things for a salad and cooking up your turkey
2: some real pro tips from Claymans Delutes co-owner of the Gourmandise school in Santa Monica Claymans thank you so much for coming thank on you. with Happy us today
7: Happy
2: Thanksgiving Happy Thanksgiving to you as well We heard it from Claymans it's pie day you've got that pie on hand you've got the ingredients on hand better start working on that now Coming up our critics talk us through what TV is worth watching over the next few days more air talk in 1 minute It's Air talk here on LAist 89.3. I'm Austin Cross. Our engineer told me about this song coming in, and it did not disappoint. I'm loving it. It's so nice to be with you. You know, with a long weekend ahead for a lot of folks, I could mean plenty of time for maybe some good TV. Of course, you'll want to know what's worth watching. So let's do our special holiday edition of TV Talk and I should also mention that was me drumming on the table, like the drum roll, please. TV talk. I should also mention, though, coming up at ten, Larry's back with a special film week for holiday weekend. We want to make sure you spend your time watching only the best here on Air Talk. Kristen Baldwin, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly, is with us. Kristen, welcome. Hi. Also gathered around the TV set with me is Roxana Haddadi, TV critic for Vulture. Welcome to you, Roxana. Thank you. Well, let's dig right in. We did hear some Squid Games. Sounded like a Squid Games theme song remix at the top of our segment here. But we're looking at Squid Game, The Challenge on Netflix. Kristen, what did you think?
10: <laughs> you know, I I have to say, I thought the idea of a Squid Game reality show seemed really stupid because how would you replicate the life and death stakes in a competition when no one actually dies. (laughs) Uh, But Squid Game, the challenge actually serves up palpable suspense and real human drama and it doesn't murder a single contestant. Um, Thanks to its eclectic cast and inventive updates to the original, I found it really interesting. The basics are the same, you know, it's 456 contestants competing for $4.56 million. They wear the green and white jumpsuits. They're monitored by those creepy guards in the pink suits and the black masks. And they play things like red light, green light, including Mm. featuring that terrifying robot doll. Uh, So, yeah. And, you know, it's the huge group of contestants. It's a variety of ages, races, nationalities, occupations. And because I guess they can't the contestants, producers sort of intensify the psychological pressure on the players by adding quote-unquote tests of character and tweaks to the original games that up the suspense and the drama. The contestants are often forced to reach an agreement about something important, which, you know, certainly never fails to create conflict. And honestly, I haven't been more stressed by anything on TV in recent months than watching this poor man named Spencer, number 299, navigate the, the honeycomb cookie challenge. It was a real ni- nail-biter. Um, <laughs> yeah I've seen eight out of the 10 episodes and I'm really intrigued and have no idea who's gonna win
2: so nobody dies check I was wondering <laughs> how they kept the stakes high on that but it's really incredible 4.56 million dollar cash prize but also 456 competitors is incredible uh Roxana what did you make of squid game the challenge on Netflix
11: hi. I also thought that this was like a repellent idea that went against the entire point (laughs) of the show. And I still think that, I think, I mean, I think as a reality program, as a competition series, it is very engaging Uh, to Kristen's point for Spencer. I have a lot of thoughts about Spencer and what he's going (laughs) through. Uh, And you know, the trauma that he will carry for the rest of his life. Uh, But I I, have watched a couple of episodes and I will probably put it on in the background as I prep the Thanksgiving Mm. meal. But it is really difficult for me to just, you know, deal with the fact that there was this show about how, like, evil corporations and rich people are in getting people to compete for lots of money. And then we just did that. (laughs)
2: We were like, this seems like a great idea. Let's just take some notes from this. Um, Exactly. Squid Game, The Challenge. It is on Netflix. Episodes 1 through 5 actually have premiered today. Episodes 6 through 9 will release on Wednesday. Let's check out Monarch Legacy of Monsters. That's on Apple TV. Roxanna, what do you think about that?
11: Big fan of this show. I mean, I know I just said, you know, like adaptations essentially are sometimes bad uh, with this good game conversation. But I really like Monarch. I'm a big fan of the like latest Godzilla films uh, that we have started making in the Monster Verse. And basically the series is a little bit of a bridge between a few of those films. It takes place after the events of 2014's Godzilla before some of the other film sequels so it does demand a little bit of knowledge going in but apple is clearly spending money on the visual effects here the monsters are really impressive to look at each episode ends on a really fun sort of cliffhanger Mm. and we're basically following two time periods we're following like 2015 after Godzilla has emerged and basically changed what people think about the world and ecology and evolution and all those things. And then we're also following a group in the 1950s who have theories about creatures like Godzilla and are trying to get research funding to learn more. So I think it's just really well done. I think if you're a fan of this franchise and of Godzilla, you'll like it. And I think the series does something very smart, which is that it casts, Father son duo Kurt and Wyatt Russell as the same character over this like lengthy decades long time period and they're really good I think they're having a fun time sort of emulating each other so I think you know if you have something you sort of want to catch up on uh which might work for families who are into sci-fi and into creature features this is a pretty solid
2: choice That's Monarch Legacy of Monsters. Let's move to a show that my wife and I have been uh, watching for some time now. The Golden Bachelor, that's on ABC and Hulu next day, uh, follows the nicest guy in the world, it seems, (laughs) 71-year-old Gary Turner. Kristen, what do you think about The Golden Bachelor? Because I got thoughts, too.
10: I mean, I love it. Obviously, I'm a card carrying member of Bachelor Nation. And uh, <laughs> for the past seven weeks, we've watched Gary Turner narrow down his potential wives to two very different women. There's Leslie, the 64 year old fitness instructor from Minneapolis, who, by the way, used to date Prince. Prince. So get it, Leslie. And uh, <laughs> Teresa, the 70 year old financial professional from New Jersey. And I guess what I love the most about The Golden Bachelor is, you know, even though there has been a little bit of drama between the women over the course of the season, mostly it's been a really sweet and supportive environment, and it's really heartwarming to watch. And I am hoping that the, this show serves as a reminder to the producers of The Bachelor franchise and other reality TV shows that the audience actually likes to see women support each other, contestants support each other. We can still get invested in a story, even if they aren't fighting and backstabbing each other,
2: I mean, this one just seems so emotional, though, especially now that it's down to the two women. Uh, they're, mm-hmm. they're going on these dates in Costa Rica, he's getting to, you know, spend the night with them and things like that. And gosh, it makes you feel kind of I don't know, for me personally, I feel a little bit bad because these people are really all in on Gary right now.
10: Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about it too is that you realize from watching this that. Uh, just like the younger men, uh, Gary isn't so great at sort of regulating his emotions he said hey, no. i love you to all three women <laughs> and then had to send one of them home by faith poor thing um but i think Damn. the the positive thing is you know this show has done more than any series probably since the golden girls to remind people that quote-unquote senior citizens are still interested in romance and sex i mean the fantasy suite episode there were so many so much frank talk from gary and the women about right. how your sex life doesn't just have doesn't have to stop just because you hit a certain age and i I think that's been really refreshing for a lot of viewers.
2: This is the promo clip of Gary. He says, Yeah, we still like to knock boots. <laughs> how he knock <laughs> boots. <laughs> that is a throwback term if I ever heard one. That's the Golden Bachelor on ABC and Hulu next day. Let's get one more in. Um, Faraway Downs on Hulu. Roxana, what do you think?
11: Yeah, so Faraway Downs is Baz Luhrmann's uh, sort of new version of his 2008 film, Australia which was a little bit of a flop in the US. Uh, It starred Nicole Kidman and Hugh Jackman, and it was doing a lot of different things. It was set during World War II. It was telling a story about indigenous First Nations children being taken from their families as part of Australian law. It was a romance, it was an epic, it was an adventure. It was a lot, it was nearly three hours long. Uh, And so Baz Luhrmann decided to go back and find more footage and make it longer. So now it's a six episode series which I think works really well. I think there was so much stuffed into that nearly three-hour movie that it now has a lot more room Mm. to breathe. Each episode has new footage footage that was shot then but is sort of new to our viewing experience to build out characters build out themes lerman also worked with indigenous artists and musicians on the opening credits on the theme song on some of the score that we hear so i really like it as a way for an artist to sort of re-engage with something they've made realize that like times have changed maybe that project wasn't the best that it could have been and give it an update that feels newer, fresher, and maybe more reflective of what they would wanted to make in the first place.
2: That's Far so that's Away all. Downs on Hulu, Roxanne. I'm afraid we might have to leave it there. This is Air Talk on a Wednesday. I'm Austin Cross. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope that you have the best Thanksgiving holiday, that it's very restful, filled with good food and love. A special film week comes at you next. Know what to watch.
0: It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. Boy, we got a jam-packed roster of Thanksgiving weekend release films to talk about, and we'll hear the opinions of Peter Rayner, critic for the Christian Science Monitor, Amy Nicholson, film writer for the New York Times and host of the podcast Unschooled, and Charles Solomon of Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. We begin with Ridley Scott's Napoleon, starring Joaquin. Phoenix. Uh, David Scarpa is the screenwriter of the film. Peter, what did you think of Napoleon?
12: Well, uh, there have been a lot of Napoleons in the movies, uh, starting with Abel Gonza's great five-hour film uh, from 1927. This is not a great movie, uh, and uh, thankfully it's at least under three hours, which is uh, something of, of an anomaly this, uh, this holiday season. Um I don't quite know what to make of this movie in the sense that it's this big epic. The best parts of it, I think, are the battle sequences, as you might expect. Mm-hmm. Ridley Scott is really good at staging battle scenes, uh, although it's sometimes hard to tell who's who unless you look at the flags or the uniforms. But, uh, but, but they're very well staged. But the bulk of the movie is a kind of domestic drama, a loopy domestic drama uh, between uh, Joaquin Phoenix's Napoleon and Vanessa Kirby's josephine um and i i think it's sort of an anti-epic epic epic or an anti-napoleon napoleon movie because phoenix you know he's a wonderful actor but he seems miscast almost to the point where you feel like that's why he was cast uh you know he's he's this very recessive pinched uh uh you know, he just, he doesn't enjoy life at all. Even the battle scenes, you know, you would think that, you would show him as a master tactician he would say something about these battles that he's won but he kind of says you know "Eh," uh you know there really isn't much to him at all in this character um except that he's they don't overdo the fact that he's short which is thankful I guess but the scenes between him and Vanessa Kirby are almost laughable in fact you could tell from the audience that they were sort of repressed titters, not so repressed sometimes in the scenes between them uh you know, he, he, he'll, he'll uh, say things like, um, uh, you know, you're, you'd be nothing without me to her and, you know, say it. You'd be nothing without me. You know, and then a little bit later in the spat, you know, she says, now you tell me you'd be nothing without me. You know, I mean, it's this kind of weird folly adieu. So uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of perversely entertaining on that level, but not much of an epic.
0: Amy, what do you think of Napoleon?
13: Yeah, similar to Peter, I felt like Ridley Scott and Joaquin Phoenix dislike Napoleon too much to even make a movie about Napoleon. He's British. I think that's
12: part of the problem. Ridley Scott doesn't like Napoleon.
13: Because, I mean, it's like he sets out to kind of answered this question it feels like you know why did this man get upwards of three million people killed you know the answer we would kind of guess going in is ego and that seems to be the answer he kind of comes up with but you never feel it at all in Joaquin Phoenix's performance he's like glowering and marching but he has more of a a loser's anti-charisma like you do not imagine why anybody would follow him into battle you don't really register that at all and I think that when you know when Ridley is interested in, in kind of like the waste of life on the battlefield You do really feel that, especially the horses. I can't be alone and always being like, oh, the horses, they don't even want to be here. Don't shoot the horses. So he establishes that, but that feels kind of like a pretty basic point. Okay, cool. War is bad. We get it. I do always like Vanessa Kirby. So all of their scenes, I'm just going to enjoy watching her act. But even there, you know, she's saying, like, you would be nothing without me. And we know that he has Waterloo ahead, but we never feel any of these things fit together besides them just saying so.
4: But his last word was Josephine when he was dying. He adored her. And what made Napoleon so effective as a leader was he was outgoing. He knew the men individually and would stop by and clap somebody on the shoulder and tell them, you know, well fought today. And he awarded medals to common soldiers for the first time, which they seem to have completely lost in this.
12: Uh, Just a quick point. Apparently, Ridley Scott has prepared a four hour version of this film that's going to be shown on Apple, ultimately streaming. Uh, So that may explain some of the ellipses and, and lack in this movie, which is about two and a half hours, I think. Uh, but still, that's that's quite a bit of extra footage.
0: Yeah, it is. Yeah, but sounds like a different film in some ways. Napoleon from director Ridley Scott. David Scarpa wrote the screenplay starring Joaquin Phoenix and Vanessa Kirby. It's rated R in white release. The Disney animated feature Wish is directed by Chris Buck and Fawn Vera Senthorn.
4: Uh, Charles, what did you think of Wish? If you put a bunch of executives in a room and told them to put out a list of what elements do you have to have in a Disney feature, this is what you would get. You have a heroine who is princess adjacent. She's not a princess, but she hangs around the royal court for some reason. She is upbeat and positive and a role model. Uh, We're set in a mythical Mediterranean island Uh, ruled by King um, Magnifico. And his shtick is he's collected, when everyone turns 18, they have one wish, and he keeps the wishes and once a year may grant one. And her grandfather, who's turning 100, just like the studio, and she keeps saying, my grandfather, who's turning 100, in case you missed it the first six times, uh, wants his wish granted. And his wish turns out to be to play the... um, mandolin which has nothing to do with the music in any of the songs although it does fit into the mediterranean setting the backgrounds in the film are gorgeous you see the influence of ivan durrell and a bit of kai nielsen and gustav tengren from the golden age of disney kind of filtered through mike giama's very elegant sensibility they're romanesque gothic they're beautiful but then the characters get in front of them who are not terribly well-designed, they're kind of overly drawn and um, thin in 15th century Renaissance costume, then to help her with her her quest to get her grandfather's wish, which isn't really much of an I want when you think of, say, Belle or Mulan or even Ariel, uh, this star comes down that looks like a chubby little Pokemon, and it has all sorts of magic, and it helps her... And after she's defeated the evil king, it leaves her with a magic wand, which she doesn't know how to use and has proved she's completely inept with. And she's going to be the fairy godmother watching over the people. And there are references to earlier films, particularly Pinocchio, but they just remind you about how much better those are. Wish, the Disney animated film Amy.
13: Yeah, the weird thing about this film is it creeps up on you that Disney is celebrating their 100th birthday by basically making this prequel that in the most offhanded, you're slowly gathering all the pieces together way, kind of retcons Disney's entire catalog, going all the way back to his very first animated films, into one universe that starts here on this island with Magnifico and this girl. And it's a pretty daffy premise. And, you know... It's likable enough. I don't think I would dislike this movie to the point that I do if it weren't for the songs. The songs are just almost completely abysmal. One of them is one of them is good. There's kind of a percussive nice number that has a rhythm to it. The rest of them are just written absolutely for like Broadway for 10 overlapping voices. And the big song that has the idea in it that I kind of like, which is, you know, This is, at its core, a movie about a spiritual revolution. You have this one girl with the power of nature, the power of stars, kind of having this humanist idea of what if we do things for ourselves and we don't listen to this guy who is dressed like the Pope and saying he can perform miracles. It's kind of a radical idea in the middle of this film.
4: And that should be what they sing at the end. Yeah,
13: but in the song they're singing about it, one of the characters, a tiny bunny, has the line when it comes to the universe, we're all shareholders. And when I got to that line, I just stopped, and I was like, what are we doing here?
0: <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about Wish, the new Disney animated feature. It's rated PG in wide release. Maestro looks at the life of Leonard Bernstein, the great composer and conductor. Uh, the film stars Bradley Cooper, who also directs and co-wrote the screenplay with Josh Singer. Carrie Mulligan plays uh, his uh, wife as well, the The family was very uh, instrumental in supporting this film, which showed Leonard and Felicia Bernstein. Amy, what did you think of Maestro?
13: It's fascinating how this movie tells the whole arc of Leonard Bernstein's life without telling us that much about the part we're really interested in, which is the music you know what inspired his music what drove his music what were his theories about what good music should be you did know, this movie instead is kind of underwhelmingly about the most relatable element of him which is he's a guy who wants everything he's always straddling two worlds you know he wants to be taken seriously as a classical conductor but he also wants to write contemporary hits and these are just things the movie keeps like telling us but not really artistically exploring and then it really takes this I want everything idea into his romantic lives he wants to be loved by everybody he wants to love everybody he wants to love his wife carrie mulligan and he wants to love whatever kind of man he has around as like his darling as that moment and it's interesting in that you're watching a character do something that's very clearly difficult for his wife you know he's not a great husband across the board he's a little lousy but he's like sincere and genuine about it and the movie kind of makes you be like well it's just lenny being who lenny is but it still just feels kind of declarative and on the nose not complex i will say though that the style of it is done with a dynamism that i think the story doesn't have you know scenes are smashing into each other the look of the cameras changing over years the editing is very flashy editing it's like hello look at me and and bradley cooper is also like hello look at me but there's really no poetry in this movie except for probably one scene where they use on the town to kind of tell the whole story of Leonard and Felicia's courtship in this ballet. And that's the one time it strives to be something more artistic.
0: Maestro's the film we're talking about. Peter?
12: There's so much more to, to Leonard Bernstein, uh, both as an artist and a man, than this movie uh, is. It, it really, I think, you know, it falls into so many of the biopic traps. Agreed, it's very hard to make a movie about a great artist, particularly, a, you know, a composer, conductor. I mean, there, how do you avoid all those aha moments, you know? Um, but, but, you know, if, if you emphasize the person to the, to the detriment of the artist, then it's a disservice. And if you do the reverse, it's also a disservice. But there's so little of him as an artist in this film, except they keep pumping the soundtrack with his greatest hits, you know, his music from On the Town, On the Waterfront, West Side Story, et cetera. Um, But West Side Story, for instance, is barely a blip on the screen in terms of the genesis of that show. Um, the relationship between uh, the two of them, which I think is supposed to show that, you know, despite all of the sexual issues and whatnot, that they had this, you know, deep and abiding, soulful bond. Uh, to me, it just it came across like like sort of a folly, this, this relationship, because it wasn't dealt with emotionally or psychologically really in the movie. Carrie Mulligan, I think, is quite good and is the only performance I really liked in the film. But it's, it's such a haphazard. Uh, gloss on his life and, and art that, that I think, you know, you'd be much better off, uh, uh, you know, listening to him conduct Mahler or Sibelius or Beethoven or, or, or getting those wonderful DVDs or online of the Young People's Concerts, which I went to as a kid. Oh, that's uh, great. I uh, watched them on TV. It's the best introduction to classical music I know. And typically, that's not really explored in this movie either. His role as a teacher
0: We're talking about Maestro, starring Bradley Cooper and Carey Mulligan. Bradley Cooper directed and co-wrote it. It's rated R. You can see it at the Egyptian Theater Hollywood, the landmark in Westwood, and it starts streaming on Netflix December 20th. American Symphony, also about music, but this a music documentary about the composer and uh, instrumentalist John Batiste and about his life partner and her dealing with cancer. The film is directed by Matthew Heinemann. Peter, what did you think of American Symphony?
12: It's an interesting film. It, it's, um, uh, you know, John Baptiste has this sort of public reputation for being this, you know, totally exhilarating, exhilarated guy who's just jumping all over the place and has all this great music and inspires everybody and he's just fun. Um, and he is that in this movie when he's performing. Uh, but during a lot of that, uh, you know, when he won all those Grammys and everything, he, he was dealing with uh, this terrible situation, uh, you know, with his, with his wife who, who was, uh, you know, had a recurrence of leukemia. And so the bulk of the film is emotionally about how the two of them sort of manage to, uh, you know, handle, you know, tremendous success and, and tremendous, you know, sadness uh, in the same pass. And uh, it's very revealing of Baptiste. You know, there's a scene where he's, you know, talking to his phone therapist and he talks about how upset and depressed he is. But then you see him on stage, you know, in that wonderful Grammy performance where he... You know, you don't see much of the build up to how he creates these performances or, you know, he's in Carnegie Hall, you know, uh, performing American Symphony, uh, this wonderful piece that he wrote, which is a melange of all these different styles. So it's I think it's a very good examination of, of, of how you deal with. With, with the highs and lows as a creative artist.
0: We'll continue and hear what Amy has to say about the documentary Amy American Symphony, uh, and we'll hear what uh, Amy Nicholson has to say. Peter Rayner with us, Charles Solomon as well. We have uh, thriller Leave the World Behind, starring Julia Roberts and Mahershala Ali. Also, The Boy and the Heron, a Japanese animated film. And this, uh, The First in Years from Miyazaki. It's all coming up on Film Week. It's Film Week on LA. It's 89.3. Larry Mantle with critics Charles Solomon, Amy Nicholson, and Peter Rayner. A very busy week in film. And if you missed our opening films that we talked about, you can listen to the entirety of Film Week wherever you get your podcasts. Or at LAS.com. Right now, we're talking about American Symphony. It's a documentary on the year 2022 in the life of musician, composer John Baptiste. He had 11 Grammy nominations that year, including Album of the Year. This focuses not only on his life as a musician, but on what his life partner, uh, Suleika Jahawad, was going through with a recurrence of leukemia at the same time. Matthew Heinemann, the director of the documentary American Symphony. Amy, what did you think?
13: I think it is fascinating to to have this movie come out in the same way, week as Maestro, because there are things that these two musicians have in common. They are incredibly charismatic in front of a crowd, and they are both positioned in that world where they're like, sort of classical, sort of pop, how can I be taken Highly seriously? Highly versatile. Both. Highly versatile. And here we actually even have scenes of Jean-Baptiste sort of saying, they don't know what category to put me in, and it's kind of making people lose their minds, and I get attacked on all sides. It's an interesting film for Matthew Heineman to do because he's the director who I first saw in Cartel Land, a really brutal doc about the drug wars in Mexico. This is very off base for him, I would say, but he brings his kind of great cinematic style to it. It took me a while to ease into this documentary because in the first half, you can kind of feel that, you know, Jean-Baptiste and Suleika Cajaud, they're very... Uh, cautious in front of the camera you know they this is kind of in a way as peter was pointing out a film about performance about like how do you summon an energy when you're feeling really low you can feel them try to summon the power of saying like the brave thing the uplifting thing And it's only after the cameras are there for a long time that you really see the exhaustion come in and Jean-Baptiste start to even have scenes where he's like hiding his face under a pillow while he's talking to his therapist. And you become very protective of him. And he is in here talking about music, about what it means to him. The symphony that he's conducting, as Peter's like uh, referenced, you know, he has this pressure on him where he wants to write a piece of music that he says composes an entire century of like black excellence, black artistry into one. And how do you do that? And the pressure is really building that's fascinating. But I think my favorite scene in here is the day after he wins a bunch of Grammys. He's at the airport in Las Vegas. And you see the moment where this guy, who has been you know fairly famous, the bandleader for Colbert, suddenly realized he is extra famous, start getting like very recognized at the airport. But also the shoe shine guy does not know who he is and has to take out a newspaper. Watching that moment happen to a person is fascinating.
0: It, it sounds like a fascinating documentary. Peter, uh, final thought on it.
12: Uh, yeah, there's a, a great uh, thing that, that Batiste says when he's rehearsing for the American Symphony, which I think uh, is, applies to all all music. It says, he tells the musicians, it's going to sound how it sounds until it sounds how it sounds. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it focuses on John Batiste and his life partner. American Symphony is the film directed by Matthew Heinemann. Batiste and uh, Suleika Jawad are featuring prominently. It's rated PG-13. You can see American Symphony at Lemley's Monica Film Center, in Santa Monica, starting on Friday, November 24th, and it's streaming on Netflix starting next Wednesday, the 29th. Leave the World Behind, a thriller starring Julia Roberts, Mahershala Ali, and Ethan Hawke. The film is written and directed by Sam Esmail and based on a 2020 novel by Ruman Alam. Amy, what did you think of Leave the World Behind?
13: I thought it was a pretty playful and taut thriller that is very small but trying to cram in a bunch of ideas about paranoia and class and misanthropy and the dependence of the of people on the internet. Yosemite smile of course, uh, did Mr. Robot, so he's channeling a lot of his ideas about how does the world really work into here. But really at its core, this movie is about seeing... Six characters, pretty much all movie stars, interact in this very small setting. Uh, Julian and Ethan are a married couple. She's kind of the bossier one. She's very unhappy. They go to this Airbnb in Long Island with their two kids. The two kids are kind of the weaker characters. They're not really written very strongly at all. And then things start to go wrong. And then while things are going wrong, Mahersha Ali and um, his daughter uh, Mahala show up at the door and they ask to be let in. Plot-wise, I kind of want to stop there and just let things unfold. But what I do think is that this camera, almost a little bit to the film's detriment, just loves swirling around and making us feel very uneasy. It's sort of like, what would Hitchcock do if he had access to digital technology? I would do all of these things. And you're like, OK, calm down. Um, some lines of the dialogue are a little bit too clunky, but a lot of it is just really, really, really well done, funny, smart. To me, the best parts are when like some of the characters splinter off and you see them interact with each other one on one. Like The main ones are so well drawn. Like Julia, her character interacting with Mahersha Ali, fantastic scene, but her scenes with his daughter are even better. They're, they have this really interesting, kind of tricky power dynamic that cross-sects with all of these different ideas about like, who really should control a room right now. And that's just amazing. It's really all of their scenes are fantastic.:
0: We're talking about "Leave the World Behind" the thriller, Peter."
12: I think wasn't the birds uh, used digital birds in the, in the <laughs> Hitchcock? Uh, <laughs> they better have not have been real. Um, I, you know, this film when I first saw it, I thought it was fairly disposable, but it has sort of stayed with me. I do think that it it suffers from trying to do too many different things. You know, it's one of these apocalyptic movies that that you know, uh, the Julia Roberts character is, is sort of racist, and and they're they're trying to. Uh, show that this couple is sort of you know yuppie bourgeois, and they have to make their comeuppance, and 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 there's all sorts of stuff in it that that doesn't quite pan out, which we can't really get into, but um, I think on on the whole, I would say it's 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 a cut above the kind of films that Shyamalan has been doing lately. You know, very much in that same ballpark
0: seeing the trailer for it that's what it re- seems yeah reminiscent i mean it, it is me.
12: very much like that and uh, you know i think julia roberts i always find her much more appealing when she's not you know being so dour d- d- door and, and 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 stone-faced and and you know when when she there's a little more uh joie Uppy. de vivre in her character i think that brings her out as an actress more um but, but, uh, but it, is, it is very well written. Uh, it's, it's just that I think at a certain point it seemed like apocalyptic overload to me.
0: Leave the World Behind, written and directed by Sam Esmail. It's rated R, and you can see it in select theaters. It'll start streaming on Netflix December 8th. The latest uh, film, and it's been a decade-long wait for writer-director Ayao Miyazaki, is *The Boy and the Heron*, Japanese animated film. Uh, Charles, obviously, the master returns. That's news in and of itself. How's the film?
4: Well, in the proposal that he wrote for this film, Miyazaki said, "If someone comes out of retirement trying to prove all his powers are still intact, is he going to just show how much how feeble he's become?" Uh, You bet he will, and it's a bet that he loses and the audience wins, because this is by orders of magnitude, the best animated film of the year. It's Miyazaki with all his powers intact. Uh, He's an amazing storyteller and visual artist. Uh, It deals, in many ways, it recapitulates some of his earlier themes. It's a grand adventure in the tradition of Castle in the Sky and Spirited Away and Princess Mononoke. And uh, Mahito, the hero who's thrust into this fantasy world, really recalls uh, Pazu from uh, Castle in the Sky. But there are incredible visions. There are autobiographical elements. Uh, Mahito's father owns an airplane parts factory during World War II, and he's taken out into the country to live in this... Uh, estate that belongs to his mother's family, although his mother has died and his father remarried to her sister. And he's uncomfortable in this situation, understandably. Uh, and Miyazaki's father and his family uh, owned an airplane parts factory during the war. And Miyazaki's earliest memories are of being carried to safety during the firebombings, which is why there is often... Uh, condemnations of war and its destruction in his films. But it is an an incredible fantasy. It's beautiful and features such curious things as a whole militaristic tribe of carnivorous parakeets. And you're not going to want to sit next to a budgie cage uh, after seeing this film. Uh, But it is just uh, embracing and brilliant. And afterwards, reality seems a little bit pallid the boy and the heron from Miyazaki Peter
12: yeah it's a terrific movie uh, and I'm I'm glad he made it you know because uh, if he'd made it uh, and was just sort of going through the motions it, it would be uh, a, a letdown but but you know he really marshals so many of the things that he's noted for uh, the only I, I agree with everything that Charles says I I just a couple of slight quibbles. I I didn't feel enough of emotional connection to the boy. I thought he was a little bit, uh, you know, kind of off-putting as a, as a, as a central character given the the trauma that he goes through. Um, and and I think, in a way, there's too many good ideas in this film. Not just the parakeets, but you know, he re- puts everything into this movie. It it may be one of these things where you know sometimes filmmakers feel like well, they're not going to make another movie, or they may never make another movie, so I'm just going to put all my ideas into this film and, uh, and let people sort it out. And I think there's a little bit of an overload uh, as far as that goes. And just one very quick point in general I think that's interesting. There are so many movies this season by directors of a certain age, which is very inspiring regardless of how good the films are. Ridley Scott, uh, Michael Mann's Ferrari coming up, uh, Scorsese all in their 80s, Uh, Miyazaki, of course. Uh, Fred Wiseman has a wonderful documentary coming up soon. He's still
0: making documentaries. He
12: made a terrific film, A Menu, uh, A Plaisir. He's 93. Um, uh, Coppola has a film that he's working on that'll come out next year. He's in his 80s. Uh, you know.
0: Unprecedented. We've yeah. never, never had this, this uh, a number of and major films from older directors. The Boy and the Heron rated PG-13. It's at multiple AMC theaters and then goes into wide release December 8th. Uh, from Finland, it's entry for the best international film at the 96th Oscars, Fallen Leaves. The film is directed by Aki Kurismaki. Amy, what did you think?
13: Yeah, here's another uh, great director who said he was retiring back in 2017, and now he's back with a film that won the Jury Prize at Cannes this year. Uh, Aki Kaurismaki, you know, most famous film, uh, Finnish director working today. He's this deadpan humanist who has a really big heart, even though none of his characters ever, ever, ever smile. And this is kind of in his true typical form. It's another pretty absorbing, sad romance set among the lonely people of working class Finland. You know, two people falling in love when they don't really feel like compromising anymore and both have a lot of scars. You know, the girl starts the film at a, working at a grocery store, the boy is at a construction site, they make contact at the bar, and then you spend the whole rest of the film kind of rooting for them to get together, to figure it out, even though everything that could go wrong in this movie absolutely goes wrong, as it always does in an Aki Korazmaki film. I mean, both leads are great. Um, the girl has this kind of like... Gloomier Janet Gaynor in Sunrise vibe, you know she's sort of fragile, but she keeps going, she keeps marshaling along, and the guy has this is this kind of this combination of like Humphrey Bogart and Jimmy Stewart, and I feel like it's okay to make allusions to American films because this movie does. There they go to dates in an old movie theater and chain smoke outside, and you know at this point in his career, like Aki has his touchstones, you know, chain smoking alcoholism men who dress like greaser retro Americans and it kind of makes the film feel cozy because you're just like oh it's all the things in him that I really kind of like being around it's it and if you are a person who has yet to see an Aki Kurzemaki film but you love Yorgos Lanthimos I think you might enjoy this vibe I would recommend checking it out
0: Fallen Leaves Peter
12: yeah, I, for me, Kurzmaki's an acquired taste that I haven't quite acquired. Um,
0: well, you've only had how many years to do it? <laughs> well,
12: <laughs> that's my point. Uh, um, it, it, it's, I mean, I, I, I'm okay with this movie. Uh, you know, two lonely working class souls. You know, they meet in a karaoke bar. He drinks too much. Uh, you know, they lose their phone numbers. They have mistaken addresses. All of that. It, it, at its best, it's sort of... A weird combination of, you know, like Edward Hopper uh, tableau and and Robert Bresson, um, but a little more sort of raw humor underneath all of that. Uh, the but you know the the, the critic uh, Glenn Kenny once said of of uh, Kurismaki that that he puts the dead in deadpan he meant it as a compliment I'm, but <laughs> that's a great but line. I'm not so sure <laughs> I'm not so sure it's a compliment um, Fallen, uh, yeah.
0: Fallen Leaves uh, from uh, Finnish director Aki Kurismaki wrote and directed Fallen Leaves is at Lemley's Royal Theater in West L.A. and unrated. They shot The Piano Player, uh, an animated historical film directed by Javier Mariscal and Fernando Treba. Charles, what would you think of They Shot The Piano Player? Uh,
4: well, this is really a documentary about uh, the Brazilian piano virtuoso uh, Tenorio Jr. And I assume as a jazz buff, as you are, Larry, that you're familiar with his work, which I was not. But the film has two problems— One is if they had shot this in live action, it would be so much more effective because you've got interviews with musicians who knew him and are reminiscing about him, and their eyes and their expressions and their gestures would have been much more vivid and much more touching rather than in this kind of low-budget, very, very limited rotoscoping. Similarly, if you're going to present someone as a brilliant performer... A couple of smudgy drawings of fingers that don't even touch the keyboard don't communicate that. Also, when they shot the piano player, unfortunately they seem to have winged the editor because this movie is like two hours long. It's at least a half an hour too long with people saying, oh, he was a great guy, he wasn't political, he went out to get this, and he was kidnapped by agents of the Argentinian Junta and was shot. And it's a tragic story of a very talented artist, but it would have been so much easier to make a better film about him.
0: They shot The Piano Player animated feature rated PG-13. It's at lemle's Royal Theater in West L.A. starting this Friday. Uh, Peter, a quick thought on Smoke Sauna Sisterhood, uh, a documentary from Estonia.
12: This is a very abstract movie about uh, women in Estonia who are in a uh, sauna smokehouse and talk about all their innermost secrets and lives. They go out and, uh, you know, hit each other with birch branches and uh, break holes in the ice and, you know, all of that stuff. Um, I don't think that it really uh, accomplishes what it tries to do because it's so arty. You see all bits and pieces of bodies and shadows and you hardly ever uh, feel like you're seeing the women themselves in this smokehouse. Uh, also, all of the innermost secrets that they talk about, uh, uh, when it re- relates to the men in their lives, either they don't speak about them at all or de- very disparagingly. So, I mean, there's a certain slant to this film that I think is, is, is a bit suspect. Uh, but there's one great monologue, quote-unquote, in the film where a woman describes um, having been raped, which is just absolutely harrowing, and she takes you step-by-step step through what happened. So it's, it's worth seeing, but I think it's way over-arty.
0: Smokes on a Sisterhood is Estonia's entry for Best International Feature at the 96th Oscars. Uh, Anna Hintz is the director of the film at Lemley's Royal in West L.A. Coming up on Film Week, we talk about the new book, The Golden Screen, the movies that made Asian America. It's Film Week on L.A.ist 89.3. Be back in just 90 seconds.
2: Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: It's Film Week on LAST 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us as we continue with a look at Asian American film. The new book, The Golden Screen, the movies that made Asian America. Jeff Yang is the author of the book. Michelle Yeoh does a foreword to the book as well. And it's not only a beautiful book, which it is, incredible photographs of so many of these influential films, but also fascinating analysis of what these films represent Jeff Yang, so good to have you with us on Film Week
14: I'm so incredibly excited to be here Thank you, Larry.
0: Well, let's start, because I love how you lay these out chronologically. And Flower Drum Song, Mm. despite uh, many of the stereotypical characters, I know a very important film for many Asian Americans of a particular age who had not seen themselves on screen. And, of course, you've got a wonderful cast of Asian American actors in Flower Drum Song. Let's start with that film and its importance.
14: Yes. I mean, Flower Drum Song is one of those... Like many films in the book, love-hate films for many Asian Americans. The love part, of course, is simply it is the first film in which there's so much Asian American talent on screen, singing, dancing, speaking, mostly without accents, in an American city in San Francisco, Chinatown. And that, for many of us, is the first time we really saw Asians doing what they were doing. Nancy
0: Kwan, James Shigata, James Hong, so many terrific actors in this.
14: Of course, that's the good side, right? Uh, The bad side is, you know, it's one that it's a story that was written with a certain set of tropes, a certain set of uh, some would argue stereotypes. There is uh, a a set of storylines that seem to lean into the kind of diaspora differences between recent immigrants and those who are more assimilated. And there are people who find some of the jokes even that kind of uh, pop up in the dialogue a little cringy, but after all, it was written by Roger and Hammerstein. It was directed by, you know, uh, and, Henry and, Coster. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're not talking about something that was necessarily striving for authenticity, but definitely is. It is still something I think that we need to celebrate.
0: Well, it's great. You start the book with it from 1961 to sort of set the stage, uh, coming out of an era where there uh, really hadn't been a lot of Asian American film, uh, and you move on uh, through through the years here. But one of the things I like is you you mix what are your big films mm-hmm. with some of the ones that are that are smaller movies that are, may not be as well known. Eat a Bowl of Tea, for mm-hmm. example, from 1989. The importance. Of this film.
14: Yeah, I mean, another Chinatown story, but a very different one. Uh, A drama with uh, a very kind of centered perspective, looking at essentially the generational differences between that first wave of immigrants, the so called bachelor society, uh, who came over, you know, kind of in the era of exclusion and therefore had no wives and few family around. And this story is both a love story, a family story, a story of the tensions that occur in terms of people's expectations and people's performance, in this case, you know, between the sheets, right? (laughs) Um, But it's a lovely story. It's an Asian-American iconic indie film. And it was created by Wayne Wong, who... who
0: Chan is Missing was his first film, I believe. Yes, yes.
14: And Chan is is Missing, another film in the book. Uh, Absolutely transformative film. Uh, Wayne would, of course, go on to be really, arguably, one of our our most iconic and and, uh, greatest Asian-American living directors.
0: 1989, a good year for Asian-American film because Arthur Dong's, Forbidden City, USA Mm -hmm. uh, is also out. This a 56-minute film. I'm not familiar with this. Share with us what it's about.
14: Well, you know, it's almost like continuing the theme of of Chinatowns and uh, this whole sort of tension between what people perceive and project onto ethnic enclaves that, you know, gather together China and a kind of perspective on Chinese culture with our reality. Um, Arthur Dong's film... Forbidden City USA looks at in some ways the real world behind Flower Drum Song. It was the the chopstick circuit, as it were, where a lot of you know early Asian American performers first got their chance to get on stage. And it was cabaret girls, it was singers and and crooners and and dancers of all types who were performing within the confines of, again, the sort of exotic ambiance. But some of the biggest celebrities uh, in San Francisco actually went on a regular basis to Forbidden City. Anybody who's a, uh, a major star passing through San Francisco would drop by. It was, it was a, a destination, and it was one of the first places a lot of people got to see Asian-American performing talent in that kind of a setting.
0: For you, well, when you were a kid, was there a film you distinctly remember, Asian-American-themed film, that really had an impact on you?
14: it depends on how one defines uh, asian american film especially as a kid i mean uh, i i grew up in the you know 70s and 80s when asian american cinema was still sort of finding its its legs as we noted but the first film featuring an asian american that kind of gave me a gut punch and made me realize that what i had been missing all this time, essentially, was probably Enter the Dragon, right? Uh, Bruce Lee, who had been born in San Francisco, grew up in Hong Kong, but came to Hollywood to find his star before returning to Hong Kong in order to truly achieve it. Just seeing him on screen for the first time, it made me catch my breath. Well,
0: it's such an entertaining uh, film, too.
14: An incredible film, uh, a film that's both epic uh, and and, uh, full of both action and thrills. And some thoughtfulness. I mean, he brought together a multiracial cast of of protagonists, of heroes, at a time when civil rights was still kind of being contested in the streets. And I, I think that, you know, that film, like like his all-too-small canon in general, uh, just showed how much could have been accomplished had he continued to live beyond his untimely past.
0: I I was uh, going to Hollywood High at the time when Enter the Dragon came out, and I remember it was at the Chinese theater, and I was so surprised. A kung fu movie, because, you know, we had the genre of kung fu. To think of of that being uh, in the Chinese theater and then my friend saw the films like you got to see this. This is great, uh, but it that was a real smashing of a barrier.
14: It was arguably the first time that a Chinese star was actually at the Chinese theater. But yes, he he absolutely uh, flying kicked that barrier and smashed it to pieces. And frankly, for a lot of Asian Americans, that representation, even though there are those who subsequently said, well, we're not all martial artists. We can't all kick like that. Uh, It nevertheless proved to us that somebody Asian could stand at the center of the screen and dominate it and cause
0: the entire audience just feel rapt at his presence. That was amazing. We're talking with Jeff Yang, journalist and best-selling author. His new book, The Golden Screen, the movies that made Asian America. He's also written Once Upon a Time in China, a guide to the cinemas of Hong Kong. I am Jackie Chan, My Life in Action, he wrote with Jackie Chan, and Rise, a pop history of Asian America from the 90s to now, New York Times bestseller, and he also launched uh, one of the first Asian American national magazines, A Magazine, in the late 90s and early 2000s. We're talking about his new book, So Many Films That Are Highlighted Here, and uh, one I have to talk about because I just, last night, happened to watch Sam Fuller's Shock Corridor. I'm a big fan of the Crimson Kimono set in Los Angeles's Little Tokyo. I actually um, curated the film and showed it at a film festival that I programmed. And uh, I was so pleased because James Shigeta came and I was able to speak with him after the screening, the late James Shigeta. Um, just uh, your thoughts about that Sam Fuller film.
14: Well, in some ways, it kind of closes off the two legs of the conversation we've had so far. The first is James Shigeta was, of course, also the star of Flower Drum Song. Here he's not singing and dancing. He's in the center of a film noir as uh, a a detective who's looking to solve a murder. But as in Flower Drum Song, he is actually the romantic lead of this film. And this is where the notion of breaking down barriers uh, comes in. While he's not doing it with martial arts, uh, he was doing it you know in, in a way that i think for a lot of us was just as breathtaking this is actually i think the first film in which an asian american man actually not just gets the girl so to speak but there's an on-screen kiss an interracial kiss between james shigeta and his female co-star and that for hollywood even in that era was a gigantic breakthrough for for generations You could not actually depict interracial love, interracial physical affection. And that's something that actually kept a lot of Asian Americans off screen or marginalized for many, many years.
0: I actually got to drive James Shigeta home after the screening. We did it at Caltech and just wonderful to have him talk about his career. It's a very memorable evening for me as a fan of of his work. That movie we're just talking about is The Crimson Kimono, 1959. Director Sam Fuller, Victoria Shaw, Glenn Corbett, uh, starring alongside James Shigeta. And it's a real critic's favorite, as many of Fuller's films are. We're going to continue our conversation with Jeff Yang. It's a beautiful book. The Golden Screen, the movies that made Asian America with a forward by Michelle Yeoh. We'll be back in just one minute on Film Week. It's Film Week on L.A. 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle with Jeff Yang, best-selling writer and author of the new book, The Golden Screen, The Movies That Made, Asian America, and I would be neglectful if we didn't do a movie from the great Anna May Wong, whose life we talked about a few months ago on Film Week. Uh, you suggested Daughter of the Dragon from 1931. This is a 70-minute Bu Manchu film. anime Mae Wong stars in it. Sesu Hayakawa, another great actor alongside her. This has some interesting things to analyze in the film.
14: Yes, it is not a good film. <laughs> it is actually almost unwatchable. And when I did watch it, it, it was just uh, very much a kind of grip the sides of my chair kind of
0: experience. For multiple reasons. For many reasons.
14: <laughs> Warner Oland, of course, plays Fu Manchu in the great tradition of Fu Manchu, basically never having been played by an Asian person. He is, of course, the the demon doctor, you know, the, the great supervillain, invented to essentially serve as more or less the expression of yellow peril. And what's really interesting in this film is that Anime Wong plays his daughter, and she is kind of torn in this triangle between loyalty to her evil father and her growing attraction for Setsu Hayakawa's character, uh, Setsu Hayakawa's character being an FBI agent sent to thwart the doctor's schemes. And it's one of the first times you actually had that sort of traditional setup of a dashing law enforcement officer, and ingenue of some sort, and... We actually feel like by the end of the movie, the two of them can actually be paired up. They can have that sort of walking off to the sunset together. But, of course, this is a Hollywood movie in 1931, <laughs> and the two of them don't even end up kissing. They both end up dying at one another's hands. It is it's a tragedy, ultimately, but a tragedy not just on screen, also to a certain extent for the broader cultural landscape. I mean, Cesu Haikai was an iconic figure who ultimately... Uh, could have been probably the one of the leading Lotharios of the screen, but because of the Hayes Code that prevented again depiction of interracial relationships, because of just plain Which old. Directed
0: anime wong as well. Uh, yes.
14: They could not they could not actually find the love that they perhaps deserved on screen.
0: You include here Crouching Tiger, Hidden Mm. Dragon from 2000, Mm. uh, a a film that isn't American explicitly, but obviously a huge effect with its all Asian cast uh, and, and just a spectacular film.
14: Well... One of the things we actually made the decision to do with the book is to include films that are both Asian-American films, Hollywood films, and also films from Asia that made a big splash in America because the film is first and foremost about the experience of the audience, what we saw and how it changed us. And Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was the film that should have proved out everything that we thought could have been true, right? That Asian-Americans or Asian, rather, that Asian images on screen would not drive away audiences, that people would actually read films. It's entirely subtitled, all Chinese. That all these things could be successful in the hands of a master director like An Lee. And that proved to be true. This is a film that made $100 million back in 2001. And that's 300 million dollars today in our inflationary times. But the success of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon did not change Hollywood. It actually ended up Really, just you know, unleashing a few more period martial arts films on the world, and all that faded away. And it it took until I would argue many years later, when Bong Joon Ho and Parasite came forward uh, with with its Academy Award success, for people to really start feeling comfortable with the idea of subtitled cinema.
0: Well, and here we are, where Michelle Yeoh is one of our biggest movie stars. Mm. Uh, in the world today, in the world. including the United States, I mean, shows um, obviously uh, and she's not alone. There are many other you know great Asian American stars now.
14: and the the thing I think which even Michelle would probably say is, what took you guys so long? <laughs> I've been around for a long time, but uh, Michelle is absolutely the, the, the kind of the queen uh, of a rising Asian diaspora star community. She is perhaps one of the few uh, Asian stars speaking English uh, or or acting in English who, if you see her name above the title... You're you're probably more likely to just say I gotta watch that yeah. film. Yeah,
0: well, because anything that she's in, you can't take your eyes off her. She oh, yeah. is she's a star. I mean, not not just an excellent actor, but she's got the star thing. Yes, and um, no, that's that's exactly right. I did want to mention *Joy Luck Club* (1993) mm. adaptation of the Amy Tan novel. Your thoughts about the significance of that and and how it dealt with. Culture. It was such
14: an important milestone for us, to the point where even today, people use it essentially as the benchmark for Asian, you know, Asian films, films with Asian casts. It's the one people point to and say there has not been a film like this since *Joy Luck Club*, right? (laughs) Uh, And it is a truly, it's a moving melodrama. It's a family story. It was the thing that introduced us to a generation of young Asian American stars who. In many ways, dominate the landscape for Hollywood for the years to come, while also sharing with us uh, some of the kind of empress dowagers of a prior generation. And for all of that, I think Joaquin Club will always stand firmly in our memory as perhaps the one of the most important film accomplishments of its era. But again, it's a, it's a benchmark where it took another several decades before we finally got to a place where a film like that could break through to public consciousness could be a box office success and not just a critical one.
0: Jeff, I thank you so much for joining us. And I just want to say for any film lover, I recommend the book because you spend so much time with it. Absolutely fascinating. And you don't need to be Asian American to appreciate the book. All you have to do is love film. So thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Larry. The Golden Screen, the movies that made Asian America, Jeff Yang, our guest. Thanks so much for joining us on Film Week. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving weekend.